Hello and welcome to Dinesh Guarda, Cities ABC and Open Business Council series. We are a fast-growing YouTube and podcast thought leadership channel focused on profiling the global leading inspiring people, CEOs, authors, technologists, academics, and people that are framing and creating a new vision for our world, especially looking at solutions how we can actually get better results for the problems that we are facing. In this channel, we've been actually highlighting ideas, products, inventions, software, books and solutions to the multiple challenges and opportunities we face in our cities and our society. But we face specially and we actually profile special people. People that are inspiring, people that are doing fantastic projects and people that are trying to transform our world with all the areas and all the challenge from fourth industrial revolution to blockchain, AI, and all the frontier tech technologies that are disrupting and as well accelerating our evolution as humanity. This podcast series are produced and distributed on citiesabc.com and openbusinesscouncil.org and syndicated on intelligenthq.com, fashionabc.org, edgefink.com and tradersdna.com, our associate partners and as well media platforms. So today I have with us Mark Robinson, Sir Mark Robinson with his Malaysian title, aristocrat title from Malaysia, which is quite an interesting thing. So Marco is an author, actor, and founder of the homelessness charity Freedom X, and that was created with the explicit mission to stop homelessness using revolutionary blockchain technology so you can see where the donations are going and witness the progression of the people you are helping. He is as well knighted for helping guide dogs into Malaysia and allow into public places, which has transformed the lives of 350,000 blind people in the country. He's as well a best-selling author of two books um, and as well an entrepreneur that has been working in uh, property and real estate and as well in restaurants. And as well, uh, I think he got a new hat as, as well an, uh, an actor and producer of films. And I think especially his last film that became a blockbuster, especially during the COVID-19, which is a, quite an interesting um, and actually an achievement, uh, The Legacy of Lies, um, that uh, is a spy thriller that was starring Marco and as well they, Scott Atkins as the main um, author, uh, main actor. And it takes seven years to complete and raise $10 million and is now distributed by Lionsgate and as well um, released on Amazon Prime. And as well, he was the star of the hit channel, uh, the four, for Channel 4, the show Get a House for Free that went in 67 countries and showcased Marco uh, as a personality in these areas trying to precisely create attention for homelessness and giving some houses to homeless families. So, Marco, a pleasure to have you here. I'm excited to talk with you. Good morning. Thanks, Denise. Pleasure to be on the show. Okay, so, Marco, so you are quite a, a personality, to say less, both with your energy and as well the work you've been doing and a lot of different things. And um, I want to start, I know that you had a very hardcore uh, origins, um, but uh, I think that, that for most of people could be something that would mark them for all their lives for you was as well a, a way of changing the world. But I know as well that I would like to have that story and I think share that story with our audience because um, I think people see the successful person, the, the influencer with thousands of, hundreds of thousands of followers as well on Instagram and as well 
a business successful person as well, activist in a lot of different ways. But there's a very hardcore and as well very humble uh, beginnings that uh, made who you are today. And I would like to hear that story because I think there's millions of people suffering for this and we'll touch homelessness and a lot of other things. But I would like to hear your story that is very inspiring. Yeah, thank you, Denise. Well, um, I think everyone has a story and a lot of people are shy to tell the stories. A lot of people don't want to you know, go into the past, but at the end of the day, the past really defines who you become. And when I was very young, I mean, two years old, my mum left my father, he was a gambler. So to put that in perspective, gambling, he was, a, he was addicted to that. He would spend everything he had and my mum's wages and everything and run up debts in town. And it was a bad state of affairs. So it got to a state, such a state that we had, she had to leave him. She was 23, I was two. And then she went to live with her mum in the north of England, which is very cold, it was December. And she was on the doorstep and it was very dangerous for her to go back there because her stepfather had been sexually abusing her since she was about four years old. I didn't know that now or then, of course, because she only told me a few years ago as the backstory for the TV show. So she was shaken on the doorstep and the stepfather said, it's either me or them to my grandma. My grandma said, you couldn't stay there. So we had to literally sleep in the park and it was snowing, it was, it was freezing cold. And we nearly died, we were there for a few nights. Um, we got, we got taken in by a neighbor of my grandma's, but basically we were on and off homeless for quite a few years. Uh, my mum didn't have a university degree. She was a casual worker, get work where she could. Um, and because of that, I would change schools very often. I think I went to about 50 different schools. I had bright ginger hair. So I was the new guy and I was, I was bullied like crazy everywhere I went. And then she met my stepdad who was, seemed a nice guy, but he was bipolar. So that, therefore he's very violent indoors and he kind of liked to own the household. And he, you know, he, I used to see him hit my mum a lot of times. I ran away from home. A lot of things happened by the time I was 15 and she left him, thank God. And I left at the same time and I basically just ran away on my own and I slept in people's couches, slept in parks. I'd started doing casual work. I didn't go to university because that really wasn't, for me. I didn't really see the point in that kind of education for me because my life was about surviving rather than being comfortable, you know? So from a very early age, I learned how to become resourceful. I was an only child, so I wasn't really um, very good at communicating. So I'd find ways to survive, find ways to live. And that kind of story has mirrored what I've become into in terms of part of, a part of my life is I realized that, you know, the only person who's gonna help you is yourself. You've got to take responsibility. So I learned about responsibility from a very early age. And then I got into sales on commission only. I was the worst salesperson because I was probably the worst communicator, I was very shy. Um, but eventually, to cut a long story short, I broke through that and I became really good at sales and communication. And I was the best in the company, I broke the world sales record. And then I got headhunted to go all over the world. And I ended up being in Malaysia in 1997 to run a public company in that industry. And I stayed there for a few years, turned into a billion dollar company. Um, but then a few things happened. My wife had an affair with my best friend. I had a heart attack. I lost all my money that I made. So again, I was back to square one, but I'd learned so much during that time. What I've had a habit of is doing the, all the wrong things and learning that's the wrong thing. And then learning from that to make it into the right thing. So then I became a basically default entrepreneur. 
And ever since then, I think 2001, I basically worked for myself and not anybody else. So that was one of the things I needed to do. Is I learned, I guess, quite a young age that you have to, you have to really be your own boss. So I did that. I became um, a speaker, spoke all over the world. Uh, I opened restaurants. I, opened, I did a lot of property sales, bought them, invested in them, sold them, etc. And then in 1997, Channel 4 TV in the UK approached me and said, listen, Marco, we've heard about your amazing story. Would you like to make a TV show with us and, talk, and basically give a house away to a homeless family and show the social housing problem in the UK? I said, yes, I'd love to do that. So I made that TV show. That was a very big TV show. And I gave three houses away to three families. And a lot of people, you know, got to know about that TV show. Even now, today, I get, I get messages coming from that TV show saying, give me a house or, you know, can I help them in some way? So, so that's the shortcut of my story. Yeah, that's quite, a, uh, I would say, a roller coaster. And I know that it's not easy to, first of all, to get out of that, uh, well, childhood actually, since a baby, that, that, that experience that is quite hardcore. But I would like to, to go, I know that you reinvent yourself multiple times, which is kind of a virtue that very few people can actually master. But as well, let's start with the, the first, and of course, I don't want to go to psychology, but I think it's important for people listening to us. And I think I know that Freedom X, that is your baby, was yeah. created precisely to solve these problems. But from your experience, uh, because most of homeless, sometimes it's people that are really in a family and that the family breaks down and they become homeless. In your case, you are a baby. So this marks someone for the rest of their lives and, and as well as a lot of consequences. So from that experience um, and as well from everything you've been doing in life, I would like to touch that because I, I, I well, I'm privileged that I have a, a very very good family and background, but I think people don't understand how precious and how tricky homelessness is. And I think sometimes there's even a, a depreciating thing that uh, people, uh, I was reading actually a research that said that uh, most of, I think the biggest thing, and for me is actually difficult and I see someone homelessness in the streets and I've been trying to work with you and help on that, but is that you try to make not look at the person and some, in some case people think okay these people are lazy whatever the stuff so i would like to touch that angle because you were as a, an homeless and actually you were a child homeless not yeah. someone that was uh, in, in 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 an older stage because most of the homeless are after 20 somethings and stuff like that i would like to touch this and i think a bit of the background because that i think it's important for people to understand that yeah yeah i think um there's a lot, there's a lot of misconception about homelessness a lot of people, like you said, think they're all losers. They don't want to work, etc. Now, there is, there is a small percentage of that element. But most homeless people actually come from broken families. And they come from a family that there is some breakdown somewhere along the way. There's some abuse along the way. Because the people that are their parents or the people that are elder than them have had their own past, which has come through to their parenting, because no one's actually, no one goes to school to learn how to be a good parent. That's the bottom line. What we do is we, we send them off to school as fast as we can because we don't want the, the responsibility of kids all day. Um, but basically, you know, a lot of that homelessness psychology comes from broken people and mental, bad mental, you know, mental health problems. And it's interesting, we're talking about mental health right now because of COVID has affected people's mental health more than anything in terms of a virus you could actually call it a mental health virus <laughs> because 
people are asked to be locked down on their own or with, with families they don't really get on with. And there's been more divorces and more splits than any time um, before that. So homelessness, it comes from mostly broken families, um, mums and dads who have broken up, who don't have the resources financially or otherwise to, to teach you as a child and empower you and bring you up in the right way. And what happens then is that as a child, what you do is you, you, you copy your parents, you mimic your parents. So if you're, your parents are having, you know, they're drinking or they're taking drugs, those are extremes. But most, I would say most commonly is where there are communication breakdowns and relationships. And you take that on as a kid and what you do as a child is you hide away from that. Because as a child, you want to be happy, you want to play, you're in your imagination all the time. The only, the, the most, the most um, powerful time as an adult is using your imagination and as a kid, we are there all the time. Now, I was the guy, I was the kid at the back of the class looking out the window because I didn't see the point in education. Because there was so much pain in my life, I would do anything to avoid that pain. And when I couldn't escape in terms of run away, I would go inside my head, go under the bed and be somewhere like the Far East. I'd have Lego, I'd make shit, you know, make stuff up. I'd use my creative side so I became very creative in order to avoid the pain that was going on around me. And a lot of people end up running away and don't go back to that pain. And a lot of people end up taking drugs because they don't want that pain anymore. They want to feel, they want to feel something that is not pain. And this becomes a spiral of avoiding that pain throughout a homeless person's kind of, kind of life, you know? Yeah, that's, that's a, and this is a big thing for society. There's millions of homeless in the world, and this is a big problem. So um, you create Freedom X to try to tackle this. And I think a lot of the work you've been doing is always on the bridge between the entrepreneurial side and as well this part. So how, how do you bridge these things before you go to Freedom X? And, and how did you make this healing? Because I think it's important for people looking at, uh, I think probably our our podcast is more about technology and innovation and all these things about society. But this is a big problem of society that we cannot just, uh, ignore, ignore. And by the contrary, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs have a responsibility, especially on this, but as well, all of us. So how did you heal this part? And how do you make this bridge? Uh, you had as well, uh, I'm sure you dealt with this all your life and I'm sure it's going to be always present, but you are a very successful person. So um, I would like to hear from... How do you heal this part? And as well, how you got the energy and the force? Because I think this is a, is a, the, the part that I admire more on you, but it's something that is very difficult to get. Okay, so the healing for me, the healing part is the most important thing. And, and to be honest with you, I, I only started healing when I started making that TV show a few years ago because I didn't know the true stories of what happened to my mum. And I was, a, quite, I was a, a bit resentful of my mum because I didn't have money, I didn't have opportunities, and I blamed her for that. But when I heard her story, that her stepfather put his hand on her breast and said, I didn't marry your mum for your mum, I married your mum to get to you. And the terror that she endured as a teenager and a child, that gave me a realization, shit, she did the best she could in the situation she was in. And what happened then is a lot of forgiveness came for me and understanding that it wasn't her fault she was a victim of abuse, but she didn't have the resources to overcome that in terms of um, help from doctors and nurses in the NHS, but also she couldn't go to anyone in her family 
because she told her mum about her stepdad, but her mum didn't believe it. So she told her family they didn't believe it. And in those times, that was a stigma. You didn't talk about those things. Now, people talk about those things, but then you didn't. So when I was making that TV show, and I was giving away the house to, to, on the TV to someone, it's a very interesting story. There was, um, it was, um, there was someone walking around in the garden on, on the TV set, and I didn't know who it was. And that day, I had a big cold. I couldn't speak very well, and there were tears coming down my eyes. I thought I had like a flu. And I said to the TV crew, we're going to have to stop filming, can't do it. And then this stranger came up to me and said, listen, Mr. Robinson, that's not a flu. That's actually an emotional reaction you're having to an unresolved childhood issue. And I'm going, no shit. She said, yes shit. <laughs> so that was like, oh my God. And I went to give the house away. And as soon as I gave the house away, I cried for three days. Couldn't stop crying for three days. And I realized at that point, I learned the reason I was doing what I was doing. And what I did then also is I found my purpose. It wasn't just being on a TV show. It was being able to be in the right place for people that needed someone to transform them, like you said. How do you heal the gap? So the gap between being homeless and rehabilitation is a very small one or it's a very big one. It could be emotional, it could be financial, it could be other things. But in society, there's no, there's no place people can go to get that gap healed or fixed because society says you have to leave school, go and get a job, get a mortgage and fend for yourself. So the reason I set up this movement, if you like, called Freedom X, is to provide those resources to people that need an emotional kind of healing because emotion is the biggest healing uh, platform and problem that people have with homelessness. It is, I would say 90% a home, uh, an, an emotional thing. So what I did is I set a hostel up with a friend of mine and that's actually in Barcelona. That's been going for about a year now. And we bring people in, we sponsor them, we give them a bed, but we take them over a, a year program to First of all, the first three months is about mindset. Why is this happening to you? What happened in your past? Coming to terms with it. It wasn't your fault. The past doesn't equal the future. Now you understand what happened to you. It's not going to be your story. You can change it. So the first three months is about empowering them in the mindset. And the next part of that year is to find out what career path they want to go on and giving the, 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 the opportunities to them to do that. And that is missing in society. I think you'd agree. So, so homelessness is a key thing and Freedom X is a great platform that you build for this. So can you tell us um, how do you, first of all, how did you create a, a Freedom X that has a license in the UK and the, right now the work you're doing in Barcelona, but as well, the way you want to tackle, you've been as well having a background in crypto and blockchain. So we've been doing a couple of things on there. So I would like to talk, to about, talk a bit about that experience and how you are bringing that to, to Freedom X. Well, listen, that's a great question because what I found was with charities, because I, I researched how can I help people? And I thought the first place people go to is the charity. Um, but when I got into charity, I discovered it wasn't really the best place because I found out there was a huge amount of corruption. That means the donations that come into a charity were not audited. And 90% of those donations went inside the organization 
whether they're paying the CEO or whatever it may be, and only 10% or less than that gets to the recipient or the beneficiary of that donation. And that to me was like, oh my God, how can that happen? You know, this is a, this is a government approved charity. How can that happen? I also discovered that in the UK, especially in the high street, there is a lot of charity shops. If you go in a, any English high street, there's a coffee shop, there's a, a, a gambling shop, or there's a charity shop. And there's like more than one charity shop. And the, one, the reason, well, the reason I discovered that was because those charity shops are, are only giving 3% to the actually charity. So it's a 90%, 97% net profit. And you don't pay business rates or council tax or things like that. So it's actually a business loophole. But again, it doesn't go, that money doesn't go to the right people. So when I found out about blockchain through uh, yourself, Denise, and going on the speaking circuit, that to me, that technology was a way to fix that, that issue. Because if I could find a way to assure the people that are donating the money that it was getting all of it to the donation, the recipient, and paying people that need to be paid along the way, volunteers, people like that. But there was an order to track that was indelible immutable and it was transparent more importantly i thought that definitely is the key for people to get out there and help people instead of having a stigma well i'm not going to give any money more money to these people because they're they're losers and spend it on drugs and booze so that was really what the breakthrough was in my mind with blockchain no fantastic and i think that is very inspiring and i think uh... Um, well, legal disclaimer, I'm, I'm been helping on that and I hope to much more help. And I, it's one, one of the things I want as well to use my knowledge and, and connections for that. But so one of the things that um, Freedom X has been doing, and I think this work that you mentioned right now in Barcelona, can you tell us about that? Because I think, I think we only understand these things when you go to the stories, to the real case studies. So I know that in Barcelona, you've been already doing things. So can some case studies and positive case studies. I think we need that, especially with COVID-19 and all these mess around the world. So a well, bit of a case so, studies on Freedom X. So, so far we've taken 19 people off the street during COVID and now they've got jobs or they've got their own business, which is a pretty, I mean, it's a very small hostel. It's not, you know, we're talking about five, this sleeps five people. So we've, we've run to maximum capacity. For example, one of those people was a guy called Bob, 65 years old, American, living in Barcelona, divorced, no money on the street. Fantastic artist. So what we did with him is we, we got a studio built in the hostel where he paints and we started auctioning his paintings and they started fetching between 500 and 1,000 euros. Real life case study. And people loved uh, buying these paintings because they were helping somebody off the street because 50% of the painting money went to Bob, but 50% went to the next candidate that we would bring in off the street. So there was like a, a cycle, an eco cycle that was organic. So people realized what they weren't just helping Bob, they were helping someone else off the street come into that. And that's what made that transaction of buying that piece of art more emotional and fulfilling because it was actually doing more than buying a painting. That is very important. I love that is as well, I think the Chinese proverb, don't, don't, don't give a fish, teach them how to fish. Yes. Um, and I think this is really key. And I know that is something that you're doing. So what are the vision for Freedom X and uh, how can people listen to us can get involved on this? Okay, so the vision is to digitalize Freedom X into an application 
where you can actually go to the app, you can see the people that are actually being re rehabilitated, there's videos, and you can sponsor one of those people. Uh, you can just give money, or you can share um, a profit share with the, the person you're giving to, to start a micro business. So for example, a micro business could be a coffee shop on a bicycle. Now people, a lot of people laugh when I tell them that, but actually that's a very, very successful business in many third world countries. And these coffee shops are making between 500,000 euros a day. It's, you know, it's a big business. So you could take, you could sponsor that and take, for example, half the profit share for a, a limited time, say 12 months. So you make money or you can give that money back and help the next person. So that would be an example of the vision that I'm, I'm talking about, but it's digitalized. It's, it's on a blockchain platform. Anybody can take part and you can see visually the transformation that, that people are going through. So you've got the social proof and financial proof that this, this is great, that this is actually working. So in a way, the vision is kind of an Amazon for the socially excluded. So you can buy products from them, but every product you buy, a percentage of that goes to help the next person off the street. And what I'm building is that visual storyboard so you can get involved in the story. Yeah, I think this is great because I think that is the narrative of making people part of the story, not out of the story. Yes. So, uh, and I think it, it, we'll put links to all to Freedom Max and as well information in the interview. Um, and I'm sure that people can connect you on that and, and yeah. uh, we'll promote it as well. So, um, another thing you did as well that I, I find it wonderful is the so you created a, a, a process for guide dogs into Malaysia to being available and you are ignited for that. Can you tell us about that? Because it's another inspiring story, but it's a cool yeah. one as well. That we, sometimes you think about the most basic things, how different and how bad, how actually massive impact they can do. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm always looking for, I wouldn't say opportunities, I'd say a way that I can make a bigger difference with the time I've got because I'm not getting any younger. And I want to make sure the time that I give is going to make a huge impact. So rather than helping one person, why not help hundreds of thousands of people with the same amount of time, right? So so I've discovered in Malaysia, there were 350,000 blind people. But the guide dogs that a blind person we take for granted for in Western countries, they would cost 20,000 US dollar to buy from China because Malaysia is a Muslim country and they have a stigma with dogs in part of their religion. Um, for example, they don't like dogs being taken into public places because they think they're dirty. So this is a stigma and a narrative in Malaysia. And what that meant was a blind person had no freedom. They had to rely on their family members to take them anywhere. And, you know, I don't know how old you are, Denise, you're probably younger than me, but if you're 45 years old and you need someone to take you out everywhere, that is not something that you're going to enjoy. Am I right or not? Because yeah, you've, no you've got no independence. So I thought that was a staggering thing in this day and age that basically a blind person had no independence. So I actually went out and bought a guide dog from China, cost me $15,000, brought it, imported it into Malaysia. It was already trained. And you see, a lot of, there's a lot of misconception about guide dogs. Guide dogs are trained to hold their bladder for six hours. They're not going to pee anywhere. They're trained. They're very, very intelligent animals. And they're also trained to be very aware of people and guide these people where they want to go. So we bought this guide dog, and then we decided to make a film. 
And the film was called Are You Blind? And it's on YouTube, anyone can see it. And we decided to film people's reactions, especially authoritarian reaction, when we decided to take this blind person with this dog into shopping malls, public transport, restaurants, pubs, this kind of thing. And everywhere we went, there was a, a, there was a, a, a massive resistance. And the biggest resistance we got was going into a shopping mall where we went, we went to the shopping mall. We were told to go away, but we kept going back again and again. We got further in and eventually we got, it got to such a degree that we got taken to the security office with guns and basically at gunpoint saying, if you come in here again, uh, we're going to, we're going to call the police and they call the police and all this kind of thing. And we were filming this discreetly. They didn't know. Um, and we made the film, it was about 10 minutes long. We published the film and it got 12 million hits in a week on Facebook and YouTube. And because it was public, everyone could see it. The Malaysian government got wind of it. And I had a phone call um, from one of the King's advisors in the government. And they said, is this Mr. Robinson? I said, yes. So Mr. Robinson, the King, would like to see us. No, don't be silly. What do you mean, the king? I said the king would like to meet you and discuss your film. So I'm 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 not feeling very safe right now for a start. So I said, listen, the king can come, but he's got to meet me in my restaurant. So I, I felt that was a public place I could be safe at. So the king came and literally sat down and he said, Mr. Robinson, that that film has got a lot of interest from everybody around the world. It's, it's embarrassing this country. And we, we have a choice. We can either ask you to leave and never come back, or we can knight you and thank you and make public places uh, allow guide dogs everywhere. So, well, I'd rather you do the second one. <laughs> so, <laughs> sure. so um, um, basically the king and, and, the, and the prime minister made it legal for guide dogs to be allowed with, guide, with, with blind people into public places. And the shopping malls all telephoned me and apologized profusely at their behavior. I said, Mr. Robinson, you can now come into the shopping mall. You're going to get, we're going to give blind people discounts. So that, that film made a difference, not just Malaysian people, for 350,000 people, that film went worldwide to other countries that had the same issues. And we had blind associations contacting us all over the place, loving what we were doing. So that film was 10 minutes long. It took a couple of days to make. Independent film, bang. Yeah, I think these things can make a big difference. And I think you, it's the way of doing activism in a very intelligent way, but a constructive way as well, because people sometimes forget how important this is to do. So and well done for that and congratulations, because that makes a big difference for a lot of people. And it's this kind of the thing that I, I want as well for us to to focus in here. So I think film has been a big thing for you. And as well, of course, you, you created after this, you've been actually, you're starting to create a career for you in film. So I would like to hear about uh, how did you get into film? And of course, you're as well a digital expert with thousands of followers, especially on Instagram, where you are quite big, and as well on Twitter. So a bit of this work from an influencer to become an actor right now, and as well starting to work right now in more high profile films and and coming from as well this part of working as an activist and, and as well as a serial entrepreneur to become as well a personality of film where we actually did a, quite an achievement with Special Legacy on Lies. 
So can you tell us about that journey? Sure. Um, and talking about film and activism, you know, one of the reasons I love blockchain and your, what you're doing, Denise, is because you don't have to go through red tape. You don't have to get permission all the time to do stuff. Because if you go to governments and people like that, you're not going to, a lot of the time, you're not going to make it happen. You have, to, you have to use a different path to do that. Now, I have always loved film since when I was a child, you know, because I think partly that was because I was in a very bad environment. So I would escape to film. That would be my go-to to escape because it made me feel good. And I would watch James Bond all day long and still do. I never get bored by that because it's like I'm running over rooftops. I'm chasing people. I'm chasing the bad guys. That's just an amazing narrative for me that never gets tired, you know? So... But I never, when I was first a child, I never dreamed that it would be possible for me to actually be in a film and be that person. And then it, as I got more confident in life, I started to believe in myself, I thought, why not? Everybody else, you know, other people do. Why can't I do that? And, and that's a very good question to ask yourself. If someone else is doing that, why can't I do it? And that's a belief system everyone needs to adapt. So long story short, I was so busy with business that I never got round to take films seriously. And in 2019, I said, right, I'm stopping everything. I'm not going to do a restaurant. I'm not going to do property. I'm not going to do anything else. I'm going to fly to London and go to acting school at 51 years old. I just said, right, let's do it. <laughs> Because I knew if I didn't do that and commit to it, it wasn't going to happen. So I went to acting school in London and every, there was 25 people there. Everyone is below 25 and I'm this old dude turning up. <laughs> in a tracksuit, taking acting classes, right? Um, and, but you know what? It's the, probably the best thing I ever did in terms of fun. I had so much fun doing that. I felt like a teenager for like a year doing it. Now, five years, six years, seven years now before that, I wanted to make a film, but I hadn't, I hadn't really any acting experience. So I met a lady on Facebook, had known her a few years, She got the script. She, it was an adventure script. And long story short, I put $25,000 into it and then she ran away with the money and never saw her again. And by the way, Denise knows this happens quite a lot in, in life. You know, you get ripped off. So I thought, shit, what am I going to do now? I really want to make that film. And what was happening was my passion and love for the film was clouding my judgment in a business sense, if that makes sense. So eventually... What happened though on that film, I met an actor called Victor Soleil from Barcelona. And he introduced me to Adrian Ball, who is the writer and director of Legacy of Lies. He wasn't then, but he is now. So I said, Victor said, why don't you come to Barcelona, meet Adrian, don't pay any money and see what he's got. So I went to Barcelona to meet Adrian. I found out he was an award-winning filmmaker with MTV videos, documentaries, all that kind of stuff. And he said to me, he's got this script. It's amazing. Would love to be involved in it. And then I went and did a, a few showreels with no acting classes and they turned out really well. And I was going to be the, the lead actor in a film called Truth 99. Now, Adrian's wife is Ukrainian and it was based on her kind of childhood because what happened was in Kiev is the Russians bombed a building, an apartment building and killed 300 families. And that was a, it was a very kind of a, a massive scar on her his wife's life. So we came up with the script, we did the PR, and we got this narrative out about that was against Russia, 
which was a mistake in hindsight. <laughs> and then um, um, what happened was um, at the same time this was going on about five years ago now, there was a, a beautiful Russian lady that was, I, I was talking to for a long time. And she said to me, can I come and see you? And I was in Malaysia. Yeah, come and see me. So she came to stay with me. And about three days in to stay with me, she said to me, I don't think you should make that film. And I said, why not? And I said, how do you know about that? I said, well, you know, it's on, it's on your social media. I said, no, but how do you really know about that? I said, well, you know, I'm Russian and, and I'm not who you think I am. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, I'm a weapons sale, uh, dealer. I said, what? <laughs> and she said to me, I, I, I tell you no lies here. She said to me, my biggest selling weapon is cyanide. And I'm, I'm, I'm Putin's cousin. And if you make that film, you're going to die. Now, how you, what would you do in that situation, Denise? <laughs> Crazy, man. Like real life was more interesting than James Bond film. So I'm going, okay, I've got two ways to look at this. I can either shit myself and run, or I can face it head on. And I said, you know what? Go ahead and fucking kill me. I don't care. I'll change the film. I'm not going to make it. If you want to kill me, fucking kill me. Because when you're up against the wall, what do you do? It was kind of a nothing to lose situation, right? So anyway, I told Adrian and he was like, oh my God. And then he said to me, I was sitting down. I said, yeah, well, what's going on? I said, You're, you are on Russian national news TV. You're every, every Russian news channel. And they're taking your Facebook and putting on there that you're going against Putin and you're crazy, you're fucking nutcase. And then the, the news channel came out. And then I knew that this girl was a real spy. She says, I told you. So I'm going, oh my God. So this is the second time that my dream had been, you know, messed up because I couldn't make this film either. And my children said, dad, don't make the film. My fam, don't make the film, don't make because I'd get killed. So anyway, Adrian said, okay, let's just finish it. Five years ago, we dropped the script. And then three months later, we decided to make a, 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 thr a thriller, a spy thriller, a fictional spy thriller, loosely based on that story but it was a spy thriller and it was fictional. And we called it Legacy of Lies. And I was the first investor, saved us some money. We made a trailer, which I think you saw the first trailer, Denise. Yep. It cost us 6,000 euros to make that trailer. And the trailer was like, oh my God, so good. And it was so good, it won the first prize at the Ukrainian Film Foundation of 1 million US dollars. And we were like, oh my God, this is amazing, right? The problem was we couldn't access that money until we got an A-list actor to sign on to the film so the film could be distributed and they could make the money back. Because the biggest risk is actually not the film, it's the, it's the cast who's in the film, because the cast is what sells the film. And I was an unknown actor, so I was gonna be the lead actor, but I thought, okay, never mind. Let's get a, a, a well-known person and let's just, I'll be a supporting actor. So that's what we decided to do. And to cut another long story short, we looked for actors, but they were all busy. Or they were like, Bruce Willis was 10 million, Sliced Alone was 15 million. It was like crazy money. I thought, oh my God, how are we going to do this? So we literally ran through so many walls to get this money. And this money was going to run out at the end of February in 2019 if we didn't get an actor. But then last minute, two weeks before the money ran out, we managed to get Scott Atkins to sign on. We had to give him 50,000 pounds in escrow 
We had to raid our piggy banks. I had to sell a few things. We put the money in the escrow. He signed on, and then we got access to the million dollars. And then from then, we raised another four million in the Ukraine. And then we started production of the film in May 2019. And halfway through the film, we ran out of money. So we're going, oh my God, what are we going to do now? Now, at the same time that was happening, the, the film festival in Cannes, I don't know if you've been to that, Denise? I've been involved, but not there. Yeah. So we managed to find a friend of a friend of a friend that had a yacht. We got to the yacht. We flew in from Kiev, got to the yacht. We made another trailer. We played it on a big screen to these investors. And we, we raised another two and a half million pounds on the boat in one afternoon. Went back to Kiev, finished the film. We finished post-production in January this year. And then in February, COVID came and we couldn't release the film. So, oh, gee whiz, you know, we couldn't put it in a cinema. They're all closed, as you know, they still are. And so we had to completely rethink it. And I have not made any money back from that film yet, but I'll come to that in a minute. So we thought, okay, let's just, let's just put it on streaming, Amazon Prime, uh, get it onto Netflix eventually, but we, we had to do it very cleverly where we didn't want to put it on straight away. So I managed to, I managed to get a limited release of the film in Malaysia and a few other countries. Um, there was people going, but not as much. See, when you get a film into a cinema, and it's like thousands of cinemas, that's when a film makes a lot of money. So we made a tiny bit of money back, and then I had a premiere in London, which you came to. And then we managed to get it on Sky Cinema on Amazon Prime. Now I've got the rights to that film for 10 years, so I'm gonna re-release that next year. So that's the story of Legacy of Lies. And now it's won 10 best film awards from very prestigious film festivals like Miami, London. We've won 22 best uh, film awards for best cin cinematography, acting, director, writing, that kind of stuff. So that success, was it worth it? Yes, it was worth it because I, in my mind, I didn't, I wanted to be really, I wanted to be a great film and I was prepared to take risks to do that. I didn't want to make a film where nobody remembered it. It didn't win any awards and you know, that was that. I said, if I'm going to make something happen, do it and make an impact and, and get noticed because that film now it's made has got me a lot more opportunities in film I would never have had because it's a good film. Well, congratulations. It's really impressive. And uh, I think uh, as well, it shows you um, that determination is success. And I think especially in film, if you see, I'm a film geek, as you know, and Francis Ford Coppola went bankrupt a lot of times, uh, a lot of other people. So it's about continuation persistence. But I think you started and you achieved something in the space of one year or two that a lot of filmmakers and producers cannot in a lifetime. So, yeah. I, and I think this brings one thing that I want to touch as well. And I'm um, is about digitalization of films. I think one of the things you found out is that your marketing capacities and digital capacities were, became one of your biggest assets as well. So can you tell us about that? Because I, I would like to wrap up with that and I'm sure we're going to have another, probably more another interview about just film because I'm, I'm, and there's another one about homelessness. But I think just yeah. to wrap up on this, is that, that part, I know that it was a big achievement that you did, especially with COVID and with a film that is a very small budget compared with everything else. So just yeah. a bit of overview on that. Well, what happened was, is when I do something, a business or a enterprise, I, what I do is I start at the very beginning. I don't want to 
a lot of people think you can take shortcuts in doing something really, really well. I don't believe you can. I just believe if you do it really well, you can make it a faster process. So I went to London to acting school. I networked like crazy. I went to auditions, Denise, every day. I got into the actor's life. What's it like to be an actor, out of work actor, going to auditions actor, winning a part actor. I mixed with producers, etc. And then my social media, I was able to, to take that narrative and tell the story of making that film. And the secret of digital marketing is to tell a story of why you're doing it and what's it going to be like, the end vision, and how, who it's going to affect. And I, I guess one of the, the best assets that I've learned to learn is, that, is to tell stories because everybody loves the story. They don't really, they're not really interested in the product. They want to know how that was created. If you look at Tesla cars, people are more interested in Elon Musk than the car. That's why they buy the bloody car, you know? So I found that the narrative of the story of how I did it, because if you think about it, people are people. Everyone is the same, we're all connected. And everyone starts at zero. And what people want, what people kind of connect with is how you start at zero and how you get to the point A to point Z. That's what people want to know. And they want to know it organically. They want to know it's real. And they want to know the negatives and the positives. They don't want to be sugarcoated. And I think what I've been able to do is not, is not sugarcoat, is actually unsugarcoat and tell the brutality of the whole thing. And what that does, that engages people and gets them to ask questions. And what that does, it gets things viral and people start sharing those things. And that's how you build a great marketing strategy. Yeah, and I think one of the questions I want to do, and probably the last one, we're passing close to one hour. So one, one of the things that I'm particularly interested in is that, so I've been finding that the film industry, ironically, does a lot of marketing, but there's a lack of digital. So for the MBD, the information about the filmmakers. So what was your experience coming? Because I think one of your strengths is your digital Kuman, you are a fantastic digital personality besides an, an entrepreneur and as well I'm sure that you're going to be pushing this for other things because in the end of the day you got the funding thanks to your energy and to the network so I've been finding that the, the digital industry is very small digitalized that's another irony that we've been finding so can you tell us about that yeah I, I the, the closest analogy I can think about on what you're talking about is basically the record the music industry and iTunes Steve Jobs said to the music industry, you're, old, you're so old fashioned, it's, it hurts. You've got to change. He, he made the change and the music industry changed literally overnight. The film industry is like the, what the music industry used to be. It's so old fashioned. It's not coming to the 21st century yet. You know, IMDB is really, really not a good site. I mean, it's, it's not well done. It's not... It's no detail on it, things like that. And the reason it's not changed is because the people in the industry that are making loads of money have no reason for it to change because they're not feeling any pain, right? Then suddenly things like COVID-19 came. Now they're feeling a lot of pain. Now you're seeing a lot of change in film. The film studios are not going for the big budget movies because they can't get them into a cinema. So they're going for small budget movies and going for streaming, which is a digital process, right? Um, but I think, like you 
think, Denise, there's a huge opportunity in film, especially digitally, to make a whole digital platform where it's easier for people to finance films, get into films, and basically make a lot more films, which used to be forbidden or taboo, or to Hollywood. You're not Hollywood, so you can't make a film. You know, and I think the, the, uh, the ramifications of Harvey Weinstein has also opened up a lot of opportunities because Hollywood used to be a very close shot. And, and actually, Bollywood is still a close shot to a, a lot, to a degree. It's if you have, it's who you know, and if you have money. If you have none of those things, forget about it. What digital film is what you're doing in blockchain, it makes that process decentralized. So you're not relying on networking with Harvey Weinstein or having sex with a producer on, a, on the couch. What you're relying on is getting the content out, you know? But uh, yeah, completely. And I think uh, probably I will get a session on this because I, I interview already actually a Bollywood producer. I probably will do, a, uh, I want to actually get this because uh, uh, it's an area of my passion. And I think it relates as well with the importance of personal branding. So uh, last thing for today, uh, tell us where people can find you, where they, people can find the film, where people can find about Freedom X and different things. And just go to my Instagram, Marco Robinson now. Okay. Go there. I'll keep it really simple. I'm not going to give you loads of websites. Go to my Instagram. That's the, that's the focal point of what I do. And anything that I'm doing is on there. Perfect. We'll do that. We'll put it there. And of course, we'll put as well the Legacy of Lies, the Freedom X uh, website and information because you have a lot of things. And uh, uh, well, congratulations for all this work. I know that is not easy. You're an inspiring person as well. I think people will look at that and understand. And as well, your honesty about facing your challenges and failures to make it more successful. And I hope the next film will be 10 times more successful. Thank you. Yes, so much. it will have to be. <laughs> no, no, you're making it happen. <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank you very you much, so much Denise. Mark. Always a pleasure to talk to you, my friend. You're a great man. Yes, thank you. <laughs>